0: Welcome to Suggested Donation. I'm Tony Serenai.
1: I'm Edward Minhoff. In this episode, we sit down with acclaimed artist Vincent Desiderio for a broad-ranging
0: conversation. Enjoy. Heard any of that?
2: It doesn't matter to me. Whatever's easiest or whatever's... Uh... Oh, okay. you don't need bio. What's a... What does that mean anyway? What's a know. bio? I don't know. Some people really? are...
0: But it also, it's, it's the idea of uh, you know, introducing uh, some of the people to just... Who you are? Sometimes it you know. Well, helps. I went to
2: Haverford College. That yeah, that yeah. is that was a big thing for me because I studied yeah. our history at Bryn Mawr. So yeah. um, and they had a phenomenal department. So I was able to uh, work with some very good people and. And that's uh, in
0: that's in Pennsylvania,
2: right?
0: Yeah, you're yeah, from I'm, Pennsylvania.
2: I'm from Pennsylvania. I'm from Philadelphia, suburbs of Philadelphia. Philly. Philly. I was born in South Philadelphia as a matter of fact. Rocky. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was walking the streets at six months, then they yanked me out and brought me to the suburbs.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: this
2: isn't gonna end
0: well. <laughs> so so that's you went to college. were you doing were you were you drawing and painting in high school? Was it something that you were always doing?
2: Yeah, I I went a little you know how uh, I had like a, an experience of total sublimation as a twelve year old. I became infatuated with the renaissance the Italian renaissance I think we all
1: had that experience I I know we
2: all did it's like uh, so many people did and I met 12
1: year old boys in the renaissance
2: (laughs) 12 year old boys in the renaissance you know I think it's because there's that sort of you know we're at a stage where we're not quite you know interested in girls yet we're getting there well I was always interested in girls well I know I was too I'm saying saying it's like the the burgeoning sexuality had not yet sort of reached any kind of, you know, recognizable, you know, uh, state in us, and I think the Renaissance is filled with, you know, all the great artists were homosexuals, they are all homoerotic, so you're in a period of your life where, and boys pass through this period where they sort of have a, you know, it's an ambiguity, there's an ambiguity about it. I remember watching Lawrence of Arabia and thinking... I just want to be him. You know, when I was when I was very little. I just want to be. I want to have those. It's robes. just like
0: ambiguous sexuality in the air. It's that.
2: ambiguous, and then it sort of falls into place. Luckily, <laughs> I mean,
0: for some people. But it was also that sense of adventure that when I was because uh, uh, when you're a kid, you had like comic books, you had cartoons. And then as far as artwork goes, it's, it's renaissance work. So it was a lot of that sort of, uh, whether it was mythical, whether it was biblical, whatever, but it was like big and bold and there was like battles and, and there was drama. Right. And it reminded me, you know, it reminded you of Star Wars. It reminded you of like it, it always.
2: It always goes back to
0: Star Wars. It always time. goes back to Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> it. Yeah, but it remi- like we, we hit on Star Wars like once every At least podcast. once a podcast. <laughs> That's very interesting, but, <laughs> but the idea that it, it, it they seem like these big blockbuster uh, uh dramas and and they were they were the blockbuster films of their time, so it almost you know, just like translates
2: I think so, but I think you're, you're a lot younger than I am, mm-hmm. and I think you're seeing this in hindsight because you've already experienced these huge block, blockbuster uh, films geared for a young audience. Uh, when I was younger, the films geared to young audience were like uh, Follow Me Boys, you know, with Fred McMurray as the scout leader. And it was, you know, not exactly the same thing. Uh, or if you tuned in early on Saturday mornings, if you got up early enough, you could watch, you know, really bad Hercules movies. Maybe yeah. if, you know, speak of homoerotic, you know, and with this dubbed-in sort of thing, which was hilarious. Yeah, and we used yeah. to watch these things. But I think when... But like like Jason and the Argonauts and all that, those yeah. were so oh, cool. Well, that was a great movie and in terms of the special effects. movies and all those. Yeah. Those
0: were just so. Those were so cool to
2: watch. They were very cool, yeah. and so were the Three Stooges. I mean, you know, it was like <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. it was a real mixture of things. But then there was this mystery. It's like one day I saw paintings, um, probably the way you did. I saw the Sistine Chapel ceiling, and I saw. Michelangelo's David. and Did you go there? You, were no, you in no, Italy? No, no, I, I, so no. Uh, my, my parents never took me to a museum. I, I was actually kind of like a prodigy in a way. Uh began when I was 12 painting. I painted the, the creation oh. of man my Sistine, from the Sistine Chapel on my garage ceiling. Having
1: never seen the Sistine <laughs> Chapel. Having never seen the Sistine Chapel. Wow. Having
2: never been to a museum.
1: So what was it like when you actually went to the Sistine Chapel? Uh, it was incredible. I mean, I mean was, was it uh, what you expected?
2: Was uh, it more than you expected? It was, was it, it? Oh, oh, more, much more. But by that time, I had already uh, I had already studied it. I had written papers on it right. uh, for, for college. Not on Michelangelo, but on the, the side panels. So I was actually pretty interested in the side panels yeah. of the church. Yeah. Uh, you
1: didn't want to crane your neck.
2: I didn't <laughs> want to crane my neck. No, but I was uh, definitely, I mean, it was like my dream to go and see this stuff. Uh, and at the same time, I started reading our history. So I, was, I began transcribing uh, Frederick Hart's uh, History of Italian Renaissance yeah, art yeah. In, my, <laughs> in my notebooks. I asked the, my English teacher if I could sort of just tra- you know, do my journal and transcribe it. Sure, so, Vinny, do whatever you want. <laughs> yeah, really. And so I, I, it was really crazy. But it was, I, I mean, I loved it. I was, like, I was like, a whole mysterious world opened up for me. And I think, you know, in my own head, it must have been like a Star Wars. It must have been a great special effect because this was a whole new horizon, uh, a whole new thing to think about. And, so, so uh, you were, so you
0: were pretty early on. You were, you were just engaged in art. Yeah. So, you, when you went to college, mm-hmm. when you went to um, Haverford, you. Uh, is that what you studied? You were studying Yeah, art. I
2: actually went there to study. Because it's,
0: it's a pretty liberal arts school. Yeah, I mean, but I
2: went like. to study pre-med. I was going to be a physician. All, all the time I was in high school, it was like, you know, I was like, the artist in the class and this mm-hmm. and that. And I wanted to be a, you know, a doctor, like my dad and my older brother was going to be a doctor. So I wanted to be a doctor too. And then the summer before I actually started at Haverford, I made a very wise decision. And I said, you know, I'm not going to spend the rest of my, you know, or at least the next four years, agonizing over whether or not I'm good enough with this. I'm going to do the thing that is, has come so naturally to me and gives me the most joy. So I decided to become a fine arts major at Haverford College. which was a very <laughs> strange thing, sort of the uh, the arts equivalent of clapping for credit.
1: <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I went to uh, I went to Vassar and studied art, and the the instruction. I mean, they were just sort of let you go and. Was that what it was like at Hammerford?
2: Yeah, uh, they let you go, and then they abused you to no end. (laughs) So it was a a weird program. But the greatest thing was that Bryn Mawr had one of the greatest art history departments in the country. Mm -hmm. And they were all Princeton graduates. In fact, Charles Dempsey, uh, who taught me, uh, I studied with him um, Italian Renaissance iconography and and Baroque art. He became the... uh, the uh, head of the department at Johns Hopkins for a long time, a very, very well-known um, Renaissance scholar, mm-hmm. Baroque scholar. So it was that was like a gift from God. So I spent so much of my time there in the art history library pouring through these old texts. And just and soaking up the old paintings. and. It, but mostly at the time, because it was art history, it was the paintings I was familiar with, but it was the, the scholarship of art history that fascinated me.
1: So you were kind of circling back to those paintings that just... Grabbed your attention as a exactly. young lad, and then you you were trying to figure them out, deconstruct, understand what it was that drew like where the what was the tractor beam that was pulling you towards those paintings?
2: Well, yeah, and also I was fascinated by the the uh, the discipline, uh, the scholarly discipline of art history <laughs> yeah. itself, so that you could actually uh, that it became almost like a detective, like a, uh, a mystery, oh, yeah. uh, a detective story. Well, well you know? what
0: was the um, what was the vibe as far as what the art world? What was cool in the art world at that time? Were they, were they trying to lead you in what they wanted you to study? Or were they like, do study whatever you want and everything is legitimate? Or they were like, modern art, modern art, modern art?
2: No, no. They were, uh, they were uh, a particular brand of, uh, of figurative formalism that came out of uh, a, a, a triad of, of artists uh, who actually were quite good. Uh, the best probably of them was Jonathan Silver, mm-hmm. uh, the sculptor. And they all studied with Peter Agostini. And so Jonathan Silver, uh, Chris Cairns, and Bruce Garnier, who's the um, the head of the, um, uh, the studio school mm-hmm. now. Oh, the and, studio school in New York. In New York, yeah. yeah. And uh, they worked in a figurative tradition, but it was a figurative tradition uh, vis-à-vis uh, Cubism and uh, uh, the drawings of Giacometti oh. and uh, things like that. But... Uh, uh, it took a very strict formal formalist approach to it, so there was a you know, there, was, there wasn 't a lot of detail, but there were very strong frontal sculptures mm-hmm. you know. and were
1: those influential to you at the
2: time or uh, Chris was influential to me and Bruce Garnier uh, in that they um, they demonstrated a, a seriousness a high degree of seriousness, despite the the abuse that they heaped on us as <laughs> <laughs> students, which was uh, very impressive to me. And uh, Chris is still a friend of mine. I haven't seen Bruce in a while, but I'm, I'm sure I'm going to see him sometime soon. So did you do four years there? Yeah. I four years. I had my bachelor's degree from from Haverford.
0: So from there you went to you did one year in Italy at the at the uh, Academia uh, di Bella Arti.
2: Right, so which right. was intense
1: study in a studio they never let you out. And said, it was so, <laughs> it
2: was so intense. I, I I had to like get, you know, fingerprinted and I had to have a police report and all this stuff so I could actually matriculate at the school when I got there. But that
0: that was that was started by the Medici originally.
2: Uh I don't know. Uh, I don't know how, the, the, uh, Vasari started the academia. Vasari,
0: uh, but I, yeah. Vasari
2: probably, maybe it was the Medici's that started it, but it's actually, the the more interesting uh, thing that the Medici's did was to commission Marcellio Ficino to create the, the Academy of Florence, which is a ne- neoplatonic academy. Yeah, yeah. That, to me, is the fascinating thing. See, I'm, 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 I can't get art history out of my blood. Yeah, but some it, of
0: the members, I mean, Michelangelo and Bronzino, and they were all... Aren't they all members? In, uh, you know, and, and whether it was the the first the first co- the first interpretation of that school, I think they were you know some well I think Vasari that, and Cennini and all
2: these people. I, well, I I think that uh, first of all, I think Michelangelo rose floated above everyone. Yeah. So Vasari was you know totally in, in, in indebted to Michelangelo, and not, not only indebted to him, but sort of. Uh, he was kind of ingratiating. Mm-hmm. You know, Michelangelo was was t- a towering figure. I don't think Michelangelo had very much to do with the Academy at all. At all. Uh, but I think, you know, and in fact, the people who did have a lot to do with the Academy tended to have a kind of mediocrity about them. You know, the sort of second-rate Florentine artists who were touting the sort of disegno school, right. you know. And then there was Michelangelo who f- was like Shakespeare or Beethoven, or he was just so far in his own vertical column of existence that... Like Leonardo, mm-hmm. uh, both of them really—I think—they're two towering examples yeah. of the Renaissance.
0: I, I can't—I can't imagine those two people at one time were—and—and—and Raphael. We're all in the same town. All together. They'd like walk down the street and be like, hey, hey. It's like Jimmy Page yeah. and Eric Clapton and Jeff all Yeah. I mean, but the idea were, that yeah. you're ooh, like, there was, there's ooh. Michelangelo on the corner, <laughs> there's Leonardo in the cafe, and there's,
2: you know, Raphael yeah. hanging out with like I fanci- think fancy people. <laughs> and Leonardo weren't talking, though. Right? No. <laughs> right. No, it was more like, you know, <laughs> screw you. Yeah. You know, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Michelangelo would, was belligerent toward Leonardo. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know if it's true, but there's uh, No. Did I say this already what? about the, there's this, it, it's probably not true, but it's funny. Apparently once uh, uh, Michelangelo and Leonardo. You saw this all, in the agony and the ecstasy. <laughs> no, no, I know. Well, Charles and Heston. <laughs> i man the way
2: God created <laughs> the glory of his nakedness.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Michelangelo Panerati. <laughs> but um, uh, apparently they were in an argument and to prove something, I think Michelangelo, and he was super strong, took like uh, an iron bar and like bent it to like you know, to, to, to prove his point. And, and Leonardo is pretty kind of big, strong guy, too. And to prove his point, he
2: bent it back. <laughs> yeah, I think that, that actually is a, probably an apocryphal story, but I've heard that story as well. But no, I mean, you have to imagine, like, Leonardo was six feet tall, and he was considered one of the most beautiful people in Florence. He was gorgeous. There's a drawing by Melzi, I think. I think it's Melzi. It's a, a, a portrait of Leonardo from the side.
1: A young Leonardo?
2: No, an older Leonardo. The same Leonardo with the long beard, but not right. the decrepit old caricature that Leonardo drew of himself. Right,
1: that's the one I'm thinking
2: of. And no, it's from the side, and it depicts a man of intense beauty, intense finesse. Not the sort of grotesque that Leonardo as Leonardo portrayed himself. He was six feet tall in the Renaissance.
0: Yeah, which is which is
2: huge. Huge. When you see clothes of.
1: I kind mean in helmets huge. they're like these little right.
2: things I know
1: and Michelangelo was a gorilla right? <laughs> yeah he <laughs> was like
2: was 5 foot 4 yeah, yeah he was a he was he but was he's like a linebacker he <laughs> yeah. was like I mean, you know if he carved David yeah. <laughs> that guy's can hands can you imagine was... a 5 foot 4 guy and a 6 foot guy yeah. a 6 foot guy is dressed in the finest clothes and then the the five foot four guy, dirty, with and broken dust, nose, didn't take his sh- his boots off. When he took them off, they say the skin came off with them. He would oh, just never undress. The stank must have been, been, been incredible. He was <laughs> so
0: <laughs> rock and roll, though. <laughs> like he's it so was so rock badass. Rock
2: but it was so <laughs> mannerist. and you know he was. He, they were both leaving the, the glory of, uh, of uh, Neoplatonism. You know, Leonardo in his own empirical way and uh, Michelangelo in his way of, you know, kind of acute religious doubt that took all of that early grace that we see in his work, the buoyancy of some the, the, the Bacchus and things like that. And then uh, suddenly uh, he has a kind of crisis of, of faith, uh, mostly in the Neoplatonic agenda, and then his figures become so heavy mm. that they can't possibly make the ascent to heaven you know, and this is the birth of mannerism. It's also, if you want to think of it, ma- mannerism, like uh, Hauser calls mannerism a kind of proto-modernism. It's closer to modernism. It's so interesting when you look at, uh, for me, it, this is very interesting. If you look at like, the resurgence of the argument between the artists who, you know, supported disegno over colore, you know, during the Renaissance, right. uh, and you take the, the other famous example between Ang uh, and Delacroix, you know, it's it's not uh, an accident that Ang would paint painted a portrait of Raphael, uh, a Neoplatonic, mm-hmm. graceful artist with the clear geometry of organization, uh, and also painted a, 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 a scene from Orlando Furioso by Ariosto, who was a Neoplatonic Renaissance poet. Michel, uh, Delacroix paints Michelangelo. Mm-hmm. Right? And he paints Tasso in prison, the poet who is the mannerist poet. So you see the the debate between Disegno and its sort of rationalist structure to it, and Colore with its slightly irrational quality to it, reaches a kind of, you know, a very important juncture with Ang and Delacroix. But Delacroix was a man, was a great intellect, and he's able to sort of to describe color in... Complicated terms that give rise to both the optical uh, realism of the impressionists and the the uh, work of the post-impressionists, the mystical, symbolic realism of the symbolic color of the post-impressionists,
0: and that's what you were um, referring
2: to as uh, is it optical uh, opti- optics of illumination? Um, yeah, well, if you trace the, that, that is something that I think congeals. It's certainly something that was. Uh, a, tremendous importance from Al-Hazan in the, the Arab Arab times before the Renaissance to, you know, all through through Leonardo's understanding of, you know, light passing through the eye. But uh, things in painting become kind of codified in terms of the four zones of uh, of illumination mm-hmm. uh, or that can constitute the optics of illumination. You know, the, the light mass, the churning, the shadow, and, the, and what they call the highlight. I call it the incidence of reflection. Mm-hmm. Caravaggio, in a way, kind of codifies it. Uh, before people talked about it, they understood it, but, you know, when you, you have figures actually existing in a black background... Uh, well, and his, his
1: he, figures only exist for the light that they're being illuminated by. Otherwise, they're, they're lost in the darkness. So anything right. that's not caught by that light is absolutely just pitch black. It's that's, gone.
2: That's right. The thing that always amazes me about it is that on the heels of mannerism, where they let perspective go out the window completely, for good reasons, you know, the disegno interno, they called it. In Caravaggio, there are no orthogonals and traversals to sort of define a space. So the figures themselves, filling the rectangle of the canvas, are are illuminated in such a way, and the tenebrism is such, so that they occupy a a fathomable space, you know? Uh, What is that? What was the Italian term for it? The, the what? Diseño? Yeah, what is that now? What does that mean? Oh, design is drawing. Okay.
1: It's kind of a broad term, though. I mean, it's, it's, it encompasses more than just drawing, and I, f- I feel like the more I learn about painting and my own painting, the more I realize that that term has, I mean, it's composition, it's, it's perspective. Mm-hmm. Design. It's, it's, yeah. It's design. Right. It's a much broader, but I mean, hmm. but it, it refers to drawing. Largely. But yes, drawing is right. such a broad term in that, in that period, and I think, you know, now we think of it as drawing, like if you're separating the drawing from the painting, if you were to, you know, if you were uh, David, you would transfer your drawing and then you would start painting and the color would be a separate consideration.
2: Right. It would be a tonally based. Uh, and in a tonally based picture, uh, the emphasis is on, uh, and, and tonally based pictures generally are constructed to show off the mass uh, of form. Mm-hmm. And the mass of form was considered the logical, the not the logical, but the, uh, uh, the rational marker of painting. It was the, it, coming from perspective days, you know, from the Alberti and uh, the invention of perspective of Brunelleschi, the idea of drawing mathematics, the measurable, the stable, mm. all took the form of, it was encompassed with the idea of disegno. So that when artists made their applications to the liberal arts, because painters, after the invention of perspective, decided—I mean—said, "Hey, look, guys, we are—we're uh, intellectuals. We're we, not can, we can be with
0: you guys, like the mathematicians and right, everything. exactly, mathematicians we're, so we're, like, we're not mm-mm. like the and the know, philosophers, the, the weird kid in the back of the room that nobody likes. Yeah, you
2: know, the guys sweating there, carving the little sculptures. You know, you, can you imagine any of those guys dying in the arms of the king? No. Or can you imagine any of those guys carving anonymous artisans who are carving these? Things dying in the arms of the king, or uh, uh, being responsible for uh, treaties, peace treaties, mm-hmm. like Rubens was eventually, or being like Michelangelo and, and not even taking your hat off in front of the pope, the pope. and just you know <laughs> saying "fuck <laughs> you," the pope. You
1: know, it's like he had a special relationship with pope. He did. He did. <laughs> but he was a, really that was a tough pope, though. Yeah. Oh, he was. Oh tough. yeah, he went to war. Like, he, was he was a war Like, had, like pope. the he was toughest pope. pope.
2: Yeah, he's a tough guy. The della Rovere family. His uh, <laughs> actually his uh, one of his ancestors, the guy before him, his uncle uh, was uh, Sixtus the Fourth, who did the, built the Sistine Chapel.
0: You have uh, a profound knowledge of Italian history. Is that is that linked to you
2: your- being at the
0: in, in Florence? Is it something? No, nothing at all. Was it I something just, that you you got on early on back to the, when you were twelve? I've been just-
2: reading our history since twelve. So uh, So, to put the pieces together, you know, I mean, it's one thing to understand sort of a technical you know, or stylistic developments during these periods, but there are actually, there are things going on that are, are of phenomenal importance. Not not to say that art is only defined by the material circumstances of politics and social, right. socialization But and that. But
0: they were happening at the same moment. But
1: they were happening so at well, the same time.
2: yeah, it affected.
1: You know what, one of the be- most interesting art history uh, lectures that I've ever attended was a, uh, it was in Florence, and uh, the lecturer, uh, who was appropriately pretty drunk at the time, but uh, <laughs> nice. he, he uh,
0: which will be soon. <laughs> We're working he, uh, on that right now. <laughs> yeah, we need another bottle we of wine. Need, we need another bottle of <laughs> peppoli. But he,
1: uh, peppoli, eh? hey, hey, <laughs> oh, Speaking of Italian, yeah, mamma mia. <laughs> <laughs> he was giving a Rubens lecture, and it was amazing how he was he was going just across continents and and talking about uh, you know. And I never made the connection, but what Shakespeare was writing when Rubens painted this painting and what, uh, as a diplomat, where he had visited and what paintings, what Titian paintings he had copied two years before and how they informed. And, you know, given that context, the painting, it almost feels when it's presented to you that way, like he couldn't have painted anything but the paintings that he painted because they were like the next logical step. Of all of the influences that he had been around, and to 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 put the the work that he was doing or that any artist is doing in the context of what's surrounding them is so much more interesting than any art history that I had ever been exposed to before. Then,
0: well, it's amazingly contemporary. You know, the idea that they were within the moment. Well, that there's is, a zeitgeist. And that yeah, there's that, a zeitgeist. Well, of course, Completely, there's always yeah.
2: a zeitgeist of some sort, right?
0: Yeah. Um, which. Which makes me want to talk about you know your work because we're talking about these influences, we're talking about all this stuff and 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 if if <laughs> if i'm tell me if I'm a but did you start off more as an abstract painter as far as like well, you know, title-wise, you know, when I was
2: twelve, you know, I was copying Michelangelo at the Wazoo, you know. <laughs> so you, yeah, so you weren't an abstract
0: painter. Twelve years old, you're. I was
2: like a kid. I didn't know Doesn't what the hell right. was going like, But <laughs> it
0: influences where you were a you know, prodigy direction. Well, no, no. you were a but prodigy. That, like, that, <laughs> no, no, no. I, the, the, <laughs> to quote you. No,
2: I'm no prodigy. Vincent
0: Desiderio. I'm not a sad. prodigy, but I play one on TV. <laughs>
2: Uh, <clears throat> no, I think that uh when I finally got serious about like you know i mean you you're learning and you're figuring things out and it's kind of sad that i go i go to I teach in schools now and uh, and some and, uh, years ago especially some of the schools I taught the um people are still hanging on to Michelangelo, and I'm saying Christ that's why you should have been doing that when you were twelve you know? <laughs> like, why are you doing it now you're like twenty five you're a like, you know, well, full you know, circle right full circle but and it is there is a full circle when I got you know, as I became more, you know, informed about art, uh, I became really interested in modernism. Uh, in high school, late in high school, and uh, all through college, I was painting in a kind of expressionist way. At the Pennsylvania Academy, I painted abstractly the whole time I was there. I did it every now and then. I would do, you know, representational things. There were figurative paintings. They were generally expressionistic paintings uh, done with tar and all sorts of things. Tar. We're going to come back to that. Yeah, We're going to come we'll back come, to that. tar. that's the full circle part. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so tell us about this tar thing. But, um, so, so you, so you did, what, how did you start gearing yourself, like, turning yourself towards something, you know, whether it's figurative or something, you know, whether it's called realism or just, uh, representational painting in, instead. Uh, how did no, you end That's a end good up question.
2: There? I, the, um, you know, um, I didn't know really what postmodernism was when I was at the Pennsylvania Academy. And I was painting, you know, uh, pretty abstractly and with a lot of uh, expressionism and darkness to the paint. And I, 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 as I did that, I would feel as if I, because I was doing it with such great emotion and such great, you know, pathos, that uh, there must be uh, an authenticity to this thing, that there must be, I'm, my brush must be at the... If it, it wouldn't work unless my brush was at the absolute, you know, uh, the, the vortex of where, uh, my, where the history of art was moving. Mm. And so I felt so, you know, empowered by this thing. And then gradually I started thinking, wait a minute, I've kind of been conditioned to think this way. And maybe... Was it a self-conditioning? It was a, both a self-conditioning and, uh, you know, an academic conditioning. But mostly a self-conditioning, because mm-hmm. I was enthralled with the abstract expressionists. And by the way, they were already old men, or dead. You know, I mean, pop art had happened. I had no interest in pop art. Uh, I had more interest in... I, academically, I have more interest in it now. But. And so I decided that I was going to, you know, do an experiment. And I was going to make a big, a giant painting of figures around a deathbed. <laughs> and uh, completely anonymous-looking sort of technique, and to see if it would have any kind of value, right? That it would, you know... Feeling? Yeah, sure. yeah well, that it would, you know, be, have a, a validity in today's world. That would that ha-
1: mean resonate with other people beyond yourself, or mm-hmm. just re- resonate with yourself, you would feel?
2: Uh, well, first, that it would, of course, first it's resonate right. with myself, and... Uh, you know, I, 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 I think at that moment I started thinking of narrativity and uh, the history of, of art in terms of uh, film and that every artist has the opportunity to actually work as an editor and insert within this stream of, of the history an image that could momentarily stop the clock. And then, of course, the clock will go on. But the the best thing we could do as artists is actually, you know, insert this bizarre Thing that could, that no one could believe, should possibly exist in you know the late 20th century into art, and see. what even my, even I didn't think it belonged there. I was like, I was working against myself to do this thing, and uh, and then I, when I did it, I kind of t- started tapping into this sort of young Vinny at 12 <laughs> years old, and like, wow. The figures God. around the deathbed. Yeah. yeah. And it was, you know, it's an okay painting. I mean, mean, so it's like so young. I was so young when I did it, and the idea is that I can paint abstractly, you know. So I've really gotten beyond the figurative thing, you know. And then I tried to draw,
0: and it's hard. And I feel like I did when I
2: was (laughs) twelve. I was like, whoa. (laughs) So I had a lot of catching up to do. Uh,
0: So, so at that point, you know. So that passion, where you like, I'm just going to throw myself into this? Into just, the representation of that? Yeah, just so I'm going to throw myself into this to, to sort of, you know, whether it's like make up
2: for lost time or something? No, no, that one wasn't. Uh, that that didn't happen until later in a way, but uh, that was just, uh, in fact, there was sort of ice water in my veins when I painted that. When I painted the other ones, you know, it was smoking cigarettes and drinking and, you know. <laughs> I've like, been a know, good was, old time. <laughs> you know, drinking coffee and just getting all charged up and then painting, you know. But when I painted this thing, it was like, it was passionless. It mm-hmm. was a deathbed scene, but painted with no passion whatsoever because I didn't want it to have passion. I just wanted to see, are these forms? I call it theater of convention because it was like, you know, it reminded me of like a deus ex machina or something that sort of arrives on the stage and, that to solve a problem, mm-hmm. it's a mm-hmm. ridiculous thing. And I said, <laughs> so, it's theater of convention, like the Moscow arts theater, the people were in like gestures. So here. it was an
0: exercise,
2: wasn't yeah. it? It was, uh, it was more than an exercise because if it were an exercise, I would have been actually exercising towards some state of fitness, in <laughs> artistic fitness. But I think it really was a, got some a, squat thrusts to do. Goal. It was like an about face, not into the past, and not without tremendous love, which I still have for modernism. You know, I don't think anything in postmodernity, you know, can hold a candle to the achievement of modernism. Why is that? Why is that? Because it's so it's it's a sloppy threshold. You know, modernism grew out of a mass a vast tradition of thinking visually. Right. Postmodernism grows in the sort of the wake of that tradition. And uh, you know, it tries to in in many ways postmodernism and poststructuralism have a great value in terms of opening the discourse up in many ways, but ultimately these essential features of what make up our how our minds are structured and how we work really are fascinating, more fascinating than a sort of like whiz-bang, sort of uh, you know, shot in the dark kind of approach to something. You know, the steady state revolution at this point is not necessarily a great idea, you know? I mean, I think that, and not to say that uh, I don't at all, I'm, see I paint representationally, but I've never Aligned myself with it, with any
0: it, genre or anything.
2: Well, or with any like these ateliers uh, M- movement or, or, or something. yeah. I mean, I, I my favorite painters, and I did I started doing these triptychs. My favorite painters were Max Beckman, I mean, the triptych painters, Max Beckman and uh, and Francis Bacon. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking in those terms, and in terms of the religious triptych or any other triptych.
1: Does the triptych also? I'm interested in this because I actually yeah. paint. A good a good deal of triptychs and Tony and I both have backgrounds in in animation and I went to film school and mm. I, I, I mean film is is a big influence and I felt like triptych was one of the thing one, one way it's almost like frames in film and it's one way to start to there's movement exactly so painting is a static image but if you put three images together it becomes, you can incorporate time in some sense into your painting, and so there is actually, like it exists in this additional dimension.
2: That's true, and uh, I thought that of it as kind of figurative cubism in a way, or a kind of represent- narrative cubism, uh, these triptychs, because I didn't want the images, I wanted the images to stand so clearly apart from each other. And actually, the distance that they stood apart from each other in terms of what they signified uh, represented almost mathematical... Well, they weren't mathematical sort of ratios, but you can sense, you know, kind of a proximity of two images and a distance of a third, or try to find them equidistant from each other in terms of the the dramatic narrative of the pictures. Right,
1: so like two relate in a way that maybe you understand, and then the third one is a little bit... More removed, and you have to figure that out, and it's, right. it's almost like a. Each,
2: all three of them defam- they each one defamiliarizes the other, so it becomes almost like you know, uh, you know Wallace Stevens poetry, you know where it becomes an absolute. Almost I don't uh, know <laughs> well, <is. laughs> you know uh, any, or, or films that are that have uh, that are made to be uh, intentionally impenetrable or virtually okay, right. impenetrable uh, and the beauty of the, those are my favorite kinds of films like actually I probably had an the biggest film that had an influence on me when I was a little guy was uh, Stanley Kubrick's 2001. Space yeah. I think I, that had a... Which l- has
1: made an appearance that, in one of your... Trip in, that's
0: <laughs> <right>. <laughs> that, that influenced so many people. And just the, his Stanley Kubrick, uh, Kubrick's um,
2: design seems oh, to have yeah. just... What do you mean impenetrable? Like land? Um, no, impenetrable, not in that it's, in, it's inaccessible because it's greater than we are, but it's sort of unknowable. It's almost beyond intelligibility. We, we, we have to work very hard to even find the meaning. In 2001, when I first saw it, it was like, what is that obelisk? You know, what is happening at the end? Who is how? And what's going on yeah. in this movie? And he was a you computer. Know, do I understand really what's happening in this movie? And I didn't understand it. It was like a mystery to me. Why at the end is he sort of in this room and he sees himself old, he sees himself young, and he sees himself as a baby? You know, or as a as a fetus, and uh, but later, you know, two thousand ten, when all the, <laughs> when all the questions are solved, when all the questions are solved. <laughs> uh, you know, the answers became clear. It's, it's Jupiter. Jupiter. <laughs> Jupiter's gonna. And it's right. actually one of the moons of Jupiter's gonna be like our next Earth. <laughs> but you know, what's really really cool about Kubrick, and this is only later in, that I've been able to. Uh, really appreciate this about him, is that three, specifically three films of his, and I think one that he would never made but was going to make, but I can't remember what that one's about, but, you know, the 2001 A Space Odyssey, Clockwork Orange, and Eyes Wide Shut represent three very powerful stepping stones or movements within the evolution of Western culture uh, uh, since perspective. 2001 is all about perspective. It's all about Neoplatonism. But it's all one point perspective if I remember.
0: All most of it goes to one point. That's right. Which is weird because it you would think, you know, as a painter, I'm always going more towards two point perspective because for me it, there's just there's more to it. There's more uh, that idea of not, you know, you're not going to this one singular point. That's right. But Kubrick one if point. you look at the shining yes. you look at 2001 and a couple of others his is all a bit like those hallway scenes and in, in the shining they all go one they're all one point perspective
2: it's a fame it's one of the things that i've taken from kubrick in my own work is this idea of a one-point perspective right. you know what is perspective what was it when they invented it if you can f- make a witchcraft a <laughs> no, well, no, it wasn't witchcraft. It was the opposite. <laughs> like it, was actually, machine, just, it was actually magic. If you could make a machine right, that uh, constrained the eye to peer into and not be able to swerve from infinity,
0: infinity the point
2: yeah. of infinity, aren't you making then a machine that demonstrates, uh, and the Neoplatonists Neoplat- would say this, something that, that a flight pattern for the soul as the soul moves from the eyes now, because painters are now taking on the mantle of being the custodians of this whole circuit. Mm-hmm. You know, I through the historia, which is what's going on, who are pilgrims on their way, along with your eye to infinity. To infinity. Now, what you see in infinity, according to Brunelleschi's demonstration with the mirror, do you know this demonstration, where he painted the baptistry of San Giovanni, drilled a hole in the vanishing point, had people look in the back of the panel and held a mirror no. so that they could see it in the mirror. What they saw was their eye reflected back at them in the vanishing point. And this is a total Neoplatonic idea. That Plotinus actually writes when the soul ascends to the the one. You see the one, to the point. one point to the point. Plotinus invent you know, was one of the was the inventor of Neoplatonism. And that is actually they didn't know Plato in the Renaissance. So when they thought of Plato, they they were really talking about Neoplatonism. So Alberti was a Neoplatonist, Brunelleschi, Nicholas of Cusa, Piero della Francesca, the whole crew of them were Neoplatonists. So aside from rationalizing space, what it is is a philosophical and religious machine that keeps the eye sort of focused on infinity. And when the eye makes, the soul makes its flight through the eye, remember Leonardo says the eye is the window of the soul, soul. goes through the eye to infinity, it sees something very much like itself, as Plotinus says, and then it comes back at us. So it's a circuit that Ficino called the circuitus spiritualis. This is the, the essence of, neo, of Renaissance Neoplatonism, is a circuit is formed between man on earth and God, and it keeps going back and forth like this. It's a communication.
0: It's, like a, it's, a, it's an ongoing thing. It doesn't yes. stop.
2: That's right, and it's enlivened by you know, uh, you know, things in nature, uh, yeah. beauty that we see. And they see Love.
0: themselves in the image of God. What's that? They see themselves in the image of God.
2: That's right. That's exactly right. And in fact, Pico della Mirandola, who was Ficino's student, um, was actually actually was this brilliant man. He had to burn some of his uh, writings. He was a, a priest, but also an amazing scholar. Because in his those writings were c- considered heretical because he actually postulated that if there is this sort of corridor between Earth and God, and that it's a sliding sort of corridor, why can't man be God and God be man? So you can see how he's talking about God within us. But the, you know, this is a Renaissance—not religious, yeah, yeah, but this, yeah. is, this is the Renaissance thing. Piccadilly Miranda's lover was Poliziano, and Poliziano was the one who taught Michelangelo about Neoplatonism in the, in the house of Lorenzo de Medici.
0: Wow. So, so when you're when you're you're studying this and you're taking it all in and you're you're thinking about it and then back to the idea of your own work. You know, your your paintings are very cinematic and we were talking about somebody like Kubrick and then we're sort of we're tying these in together. Um, were you always when you started and I wanna even go back to the the figures at the at the deathbed. <laughs> the idea of like coming from there to what we're talking about now, whether being influenced by cinema, uh, Kubrick or but the idea of your paintings being cinematic, um, uh, how how I still want to know, like how we got there, like I, how I got to the paintings that I'm doing now, the cinema. Yeah, something being a little bit more well, going from being abstract to doing this experiment, well, to you know bringing in all these things, these ideas of 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 being of reading a lot, and okay. now coming sort of. To where we are right now, with with your work, like what is painting to you?
2: Well, that's all a, these things are sort of now we're converging. See, that's a really good question. Here's the thing: is that when I was a I wish young. I can explain it better though. <laughs> no, you did it. It's very good. When I was uh, young, I was um, I, I was dyslexic. Like many many artists are, I'm not anymore because of painting. Actually, oddly enough, because it because of Wait, the visual because, because of the visual connection. Too, but I still <laughs> well. Here's the thing, and uh, this is a very this is this is kind of an interesting. A lot of uh, I sat at a table with a bunch of artists, and I said, "Who was dyslexic?" when every hand goes every Yeah, I think saw. I might have. Now, I think
0: generally I just I, my eyes went too fast oh, or my brain went too fast for my eyes or was it vice versa?
2: Yeah, you, you, were, you were Well, that's a classic symptom of, of this because, um, you know, I didn't read first of all, I didn't read a, my, a book all the way through until I was in 10th grade. And when I did read a book all the way through after having painted from the time I was twelve, it was Tolstoy's Resurrection. Oh goodness! <laughs> yeah. no. And Jeez. I was like, okay, and now I'm gonna I know what's going to pick up on. the heaviest weight. No, but you know why it was—I could—it acce- uh, was accessible to me because I began to understand everything in terms of art.
0: But how about like, you know, Dr. Seuss or something that's not so like <laughs> no, you didn't no, have no, to right. it that much. <laughs> that was
2: too much like art. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> No, but you know, so, if yeah. if you read whenever you see a protagonist in the story, you say he's an artist. Now, what is he doing? And imagine that everything he does is a metaphor. Right? Everything he does is symbolic of some kind of thing. And once you start doing that, you see that you see the fiction for what it is, but you also see that the thought of the author who's also an artist, and you feel a kinship with the author. And through want,
1: this technical narrative, uh, kind of thing.
2: I guess that's in a way where the technical narrative comes in, but the. Uh, uh, that painting, actually, the way I got to the way I think now about painting, about art, and many other things, is that you know through the process of painting, and the scrutiny of sort of the the relation to the rational relationships that exist within the processes of painting, I was able to construct models that allowed me to to interpolate the activity of painting into other disciplines. And I told my son about this, who was also dyslexic, and I said, I'm going to show this kid how to stuff about art. So by the time he was like also 12, he was doing indirect painting, you know, I was showing him, it was simple things, but he was doing it. And he understood these concepts, you know, even though you'd talk to him and say something to him, he couldn't understand what you were saying. Now the guy in college, he's reading Heidegger and uh, (laughs) philosophy, and he's a composer. And when he composes music, he composes it spatially, he says. He thinks of everything in terms of spatial dimensions and in terms of the things that we talked about when he was a kid. So he, I said, if you can just, whenever you read these things or think these things, just uh, insert into that what you know about painting, what you've learned about painting, what you've intuited about painting. Now,
0: was it, it you, you said indirect painting, was, was, is, would that be a, would you say a direct painting and direct painting, two different results? Because some of the people who are listening are probably, like, what is in direct painting. Oh, or, well. Sure. What's yeah. A, yeah. Jay Jay, Brown. Jay, Brown. Jay Brown. <laughs> He's, like, he, he sort of, every once in a while when we look at him, he's, like, I don't know what you're talking about. We're, like, oh, yeah. I'm, I'm the baseline. He, the yeah. <laughs> That's all he's right. He's our no. bar at, like, oh, wait, we we're talking about. because above. we never
1: know what, like exactly we get pretty technical
2: and we get really technical well, we don't well, realize that, that some people don't understand what we're talking about well do, you know indirect painting is pretty much you, you give someone colors and you you there are methods for you know developing the logic of that kind of painting which yeah. are very appropriate and you 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 work almost a la prima in a sense you're painting very directly you with put the color. paint down and it's right. there straightforward jay straightforward. just yes With indirect painting you at first strike
0: I'm to <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, Tony. In, in, in,
2: with indirect painting, you are not arriving immediately at the solution for the picture in terms of color, in terms of value, in terms of the atmosphere. You're actually building the painting through layers of, of paint uh, okay. that are moving toward the you're using the, the translucency
1: wire. of the paint to create That's different effects. One, one part that, of it, but yeah. Well, it's like playing
0: chess sometimes that you
2: have to think a few moves ahead oh. and say that it's going to get to this at some point.
0: Now, that and the I, other
2: thing about it is that it's like sailing in that in order to go down the river or up the river or wherever, whatever direction you are go, going on the river. you can't go straight. You have and to, because you're sailing, you have to tack. Weave. Right. So you might, in order to get to this point here, you have to go here first and accept the fact that it's going to look like this so that by the time you bring it around to this it'll look like it now what that does is it sort of activates the paint surface in a a different kind of way not a better way a different kind of way and that activation of the surface uh, can imply a different kind of technical narrative Mm. uh, a different kind of thing altogether so the complexity of the execution of the paint is actually, in an uncanny way, uh, gleaned by the person looking at it. Everybody gleans it Mm -hmm. when they look at it, pretty much.
0: Now, the idea of indirect painting, did you think you can sort of... You you go from one point to another, to another, to another, and you'll eventually get to the, the end result. Do you think that cures thinking. dyslexia thinking that way it's, a, it's it an absolute cure for dyslexia. science it's no. going to go on record right now you heard it right here right for the first
2: time all right
0: this
2: podcast i'm uh, i think skyrocketing
1: I... to number one in the charts
2: is the self-help i'm and hearing nobel prize nobel nobel prize <laughs> Vincent, we did it. High five. <laughs> High five, right. Like it down.
0: Boys, we did it. Actually, I mean, uh, all right. But, you know, one thing no, I... It's
2: no, it's not, it's not necessarily indirect. When uh, I was actually teaching... I don't him know my, if you
0: were being, like, specific about, no, indirect was the...
2: Well, it was, it was in, indirect in that, you know, he starts to think about, uh, for example, what if in music now he might say, Oscar, my son Oscar might say to me, um, um, there, it's like there is a, uh, a scumble over the entire piece of music or that there's an underpainting that is developed with indirect method and he might say that the indirect color, the optical grays that you get might be like harmonics in music mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, that sort of a negative values they used to call them back in the 1800s you know, and uh, so he was equating these things with his construction of music you know, not left, right, up down, but into out so mm-hmm. that uh, a scrim which is a scumble, incidentally something about Italian words, you yeah. know, Ital- Titian used to say 30 or 40 glazes, right? You ever hear that expression? <laughs> yeah, yeah. T- yeah. But in Italian, the word for glaze and scumble is the same word. What is it? It's a uh, velatura. A velatura okay. is a glaze which is transparent where the light comes through a veil and and Easy. a scumble is light almost like a veil yeah it's light. it's uh, o- semi-opaque where the where the darkness comes true sure, sure. but you know a lot of people will say you just keep glazing the damn thing and you can't do that you've got to tack. you got to go glaze scumble glaze scumble like that it moves like that and you never end with a glaze yeah. Anyway, be that as it may, I mean the complexities of that particular kind of painting uh, were uh, uh, somehow he was able to grasp them almost mathematically. Well, I mean,
0: this is your painting. Let's talk a little bit about your painting process. I mean, we're, we're talking about this, but it's pretty much what you. How you paint?
2: No, I don't paint. In fact, I spent all day today avoiding at all that. costs putting any kind of opa- uh, semi opacity or, or, or uh, glaze over anything. So you were direct painting? Uh, it's direct painting, but it sort of evokes the sense of these things in an amplified way. Let me explain. You look at the late work of Titian, the late work of Rembrandt, and what you see are these painters who painted with the greatest finesse as young people. At the end of their lives, are painting with a, a remarkable freedom. Right. And like I keep really like shoveling on the paint. <laughs> right. Like I think of the Oath of Julius uh, Civilis by you know the one with the oath. Yeah, yeah. Rembrandt. And that the paint is slammed on, as you said, you know, and. Um, They're really using the very same principles that they had going as younger men, but now they're amplifying them. And in the amplification of those things, you get a completely different animal. You know? Um, So instead of glazing, for example, nowadays, I might uh, take a. Draw with a roofing tar in parts of the picture. Back the, back and then the tar. Back to the tar. Full circle. <laughs> yeah. Full circle. And take a lino roller, big lino roller, and roll it over the tar, speckle the painting with the tar. So always at every turn being totally willing to destroy even the finest thing I've done. Are you worried about the tar? Nah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... I think we're all familiar <laughs> with the raft of the material, so. Let Al Gore worry about it? No, uh, am which I, is
1: the most heartbreaking thing in the world. No, to uh, there
2: are different ways to use bitumen. First of all, uh, Rembrandt used bitumen, but his paintings are not falling apart. Right. I, I don't know how he used it. And I'm not using it that way. But
1: did he really? Is that? Is yeah, that there,
2: there's he... bitumen. Because I
1: thought that was the 19th century interpretation of what Rembrandt doing was bitumen. And so then they all started using it. And then their paintings, then we get the record. It may
2: may, may be that. But if you glaze sometimes with bitumen, it has less of a damaging effect than if you, you paint underneath with bitumen. Mm. Uh, I I don't uh, or somehow the bubbling up that happens is because the bitumen is is constantly in motion right right and the uh, subsequent layers are stiffer oh, so if it's an, a top layer if it's on the top it may be of less I'm not saying what I use actually is not exactly roofing tar it's this flashing cement
1: <laughs> that sounds worse <laughs> no flashing cement
2: holds its shape you you pour the stuff on the roof and it lays flat but when you put flashing on the uh, chimney you know you right. gotta put the the stuff to like and stuff It's got to right. stay there. It can't, you know, melt and the whole thing fall apart. So it hardens, and it's got acrylic fiber in it too. But the color is like no, no other color. But if you mean I mean, like a transparent, rich, dark. I, is that I don't use it, it transparently. I use it. I take a. Here's what I do. As I begin paintings nowadays, I take a surgical glove and a can of this flashings flashing, flashing. I'm so s- waiting to hear exactly <laughs> what you're doing. I, I, like a proctologist. I <laughs> snap, ah, snap the glove on, and then I dig into this this can you of. Probe, you probe. You probe the I can. I probe the can of looking for just the right. You know. Uh. Anyway, <laughs> enough of that. Too far. <laughs> and I, um, and then I begin. I, I, I could begin drawing. The whole thing with, with my your hand, with my hand. How big uh, a canvas are we talking? We did here? they're big. You painted big, big, big yeah, Okay, big, big. okay, go on. Yeah, big, and uh, and oh, I did a whole series of drawings two shows ago that were all uh, initiated this way on canvas. They were on board, mm. and oh, and then eventually on canvas that were uh, Mass- to the board. Mass- Mass- then, right. board. Yeah. Right. I could yeah, see
0: that being a lot safer. You know, just in yeah, general.
2: nowadays all of my paintings are behind. Uh-huh. I have yeah. foam. I have not foam core, but a gator board. Gator board, Yeah. So that they're stiff. They're stiff. You can't poke them or anything. Yeah. But after I do that, I, I mean, it feels like I've reborn in terms of uh, gestural abstract expressionism. You know, and I I feel so it feels so natural to me. You know, with your hand, you could use your palm. You could pick up a few fingers and do that. You could. Do that with your fingers. It's like playing the piano, really. You're more so,
1: connected. Like it's a more direct. There's not a brush in between you and your. Right,
2: the brush gets in the way so many times. Like today, I painted. Everything I painted today, I painted with a knife. Hmm. You know, dipping the knife into another of my favorite materials is rustolium. <laughs> I was about to say acid. The acid, no. Say that for the fence with the upper series that I'm working
0: no, uh, with. With Rust Oleum spray paint? I mean, like no, cans, it's of not, paint, so, the, the cans of paint? No, the cans
2: of paint. It's canned, enamel, enamel, enamel. Enamel. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, You know, de Kooning probably is. Barbecue black. Like I don't use black. I don't like the black, but I use almond white. And uh, I
0: I know it in the spray paint. We were graffiti we artists were for years. years. Yes, I know, I know. I read about that. So very cool. Um, so we know abstraction. Yeah, no, it us. I love graffiti. I mean, graffiti. Love
2: right. graffiti. Friends yeah. of mine were. There are amazing things that happen there. The yeah, it's very cool stuff. Yeah. So yeah. go on, Rust Oleum. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, the materials. There. I really like so, all does. right, let's let's say, getting us. back to what we we're saying. So if if I then draw with the 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 material the 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 uh, tar. Okay, then I sit back and look at it for a while, and then I take a a roller. Now, instead of putting a glaze then over this whole thing, what if I take a roller, a linen roller, a stiff rubber thing, and start, you know, violently rolling over this drawing I've made so that the, the, the linoleum roller picks up little pieces of the chart and it speckles it all over the canvas like that, randomly, right. you know? When you look at it then, it appears as if, and this is in the amplification of an indirect method, it appears that you're looking through a glaze of some sort, although it's not transparent anymore. Mm. There are big gaps between the pieces, so it appears transparent. In other words, I took a pixel. It's the like looking through a
1: screen or something. Yeah,
2: at the same, now I'm looking. I'm looking through the context of this you know, created technical experience, which is akin to uh, you know glazing in a sense, isolating what's underneath from. And so then after that, what if I say, okay, let that dry. And uh, sometimes I will then well, before it's dry, when it's sort of partially dry. I'll take white, uh, uh, an almond color white. You know, and I'll start with a, glo- a different glove, and I'll start working light into it. And then as I'm doing that, roll that over. Let's really roll it so that it flattens itself into the little speckles of tar. Mm-hmm. Is this just big,
1: compositional, kind of almost abstract ideas that you're just blowing No, these are the figurative. Canvas? These oh. are
2: figurative. I painted this. Right. So, uh, so you're, exp- I mean, but the Now idea- you have a scumble, see? Yeah. Now you've got a lightness over some of that darkness where the, where you create an optical gray, and it looks like you're looking through a veil over parts of it, and, uh, and, or, or most of it. So that's how I amplify the, te- the indirect method technique. Of course, after that, I might, you know... Put a sheet of uh, poly, a polyurethane over it, you know, with a tint to it, or shellac, amber shellac, yeah. and let it dry, and then begin the whole thing over again. I'm and what like, is
1: that doing for you? What it, like, what well, are you getting out of.? I'm neurological video. problems. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. well, you know, it's. Puffing <laughs> paint. You're yeah. probably <laughs> having a great time.
0: Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> We're having a good open time open the windows. <laughs> you need a little bit there air there. Yeah, I get the problem. But, that all but, but time. the idea is that you, the process is becoming very important it sounds like the process is important yes. so we haven't even talked about I mean Ted mentioned it and you were saying it's figurative now what's the end result is the end result as important as the process or is it all about the process and the end results whatever it becomes and who cares no or is the, it all important the
2: journey toward the, the end result is almost like uh, you know the odyssey you know, he, he was trying to get back to Troy, you know, or trying to get back to uh, his... His, his Right. Uh, <laughs> but he um, keeps running into these things, and he has to, like, be cunning and sort of think on his feet and try to figure out how to get out of one situation into another situation. Now, if he didn't do that, if he just, like, sailed straight back and got back home, there would be no honesty. But the whole point of it is that he is being confronted with all of this nonsense Forced tacking it's forced tacking the gods are working against him and he's like you know holy i just want to get back and he goes whoa she's beautiful i'll stick around here for 10 years and they go no i gotta leave and get back on the boat he's tall and he only has one eye that's right this guy's got one eye you know so then he says who am I I'm no man I'm no, no man no one no one. Yeah. And no Cyclops, man or no I don't he says right. no one or something like that and so the Cyclops you know comes out and he goes I've been blinded they said who blinded you his brothers said he goes no, no one, one has blinded me and they go well <laughs> then go back to sleep <laughs>
0: <laughs> but they're just not observing the fact that his eyes
2: just burnt out now <laughs> yeah that's right like, well they're groggy yeah <laughs> all that sort of like you know morning thing going so
0: but I mean the process is very important to Yeah. You. So, yes. but you know, right now it's it's just it, I mean, it sounds like it's not pure. I mean,
2: it, but is I mean, it pure experimenting? No, no, it's not because or the pro- a, the process is um, is uh, uh, is enabling me to get to this if this sort of thing that is almost ephemeral, but something that I have a, 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 a that I can glean at the end of the journey. You know what I mean? I, what I mean, is it I, important for
0: people who may own this or own the painting to know? How you did it? Why? Or is it like is it something that you educate them on? Or is it like you buy the painting and you, no, no, this is have, for me, not for I you?
2: I, let me let me put it this way: um, in, when we talk about narrative painting. And most of the time it's sort of anathema to to modernism that you even dream of painting a a narrative picture, a picture that tells a story, that's just illustration. But there are two kinds of narrative in a painting. There's the dramatic narrative, which seems to be what is happening on the canvas. And then the most important narrative is the technical narrative. So when we look at paintings, you know, we may be somewhat interested in what's going on in the picture, but what we're really interested is why it's going on we, that way. Uh,
1: who is we though? Is we just is we other artists, artists? Well, or because well, I feel like you know, I had the experience. I was telling Tony earlier, like I, I brought a friend to the Metropolitan, a friend who knew me from graffiti and loved my graffiti and wanted to understand what the hell I was doing. And I brought him to the Metropolitan. Meaning I brought your
0: him transition from graffiti to, to doing something yeah, new.
1: And I brought him to Juan de Perea, which uh, Velasquez painting at the Metropolitan, right. which I had copied, spent, you know, I don't know, a month, you know, just trying to to basically deconstruct it and reconstruct it on a canvas just to understand it. And I found it to be such a brilliant painting. And it, I was just so moved by the, the way he's using paint. And anyway, I brought my friend there in this big, you know, ta-da moment. I... It's like here's here's it is. This is going to answer all the questions. And he looks at me, he looks at me. And he says, "I don't get it. It's just a dude." <laughs> See,
2: yes, you're right. Uh, but the, here's the thing: is are we to do actually dumb down our thoughts? Are, are, to have a renaissance, we're not going to dumb down all of our thoughts so that everyone on earth. Every, well, we don't
1: need to. Well, but I've
2: just we don't. No, I, and I don't want to because I will interfere with my creative process. Right. You know, I don't not to dumb not to say dumb it down to be insulting to people. But I, I can't worry about whether or not i'm communicating in fact i don't think art communicates anything i think if people uh art is a form of self-enlightenment for the artist and that if people sort of like look at it and sort of can get on board recognize something of their own thought then then that's fine but it's no business of the artists to sort of educate them like Mm -hmm. i don't want to be a shaman i'm not going to lead anybody you know i'll just do what i have to do and uh and if people are interested in it, they are. If they're not, they're not. It's of no concern to me. The audience fundamentally is dead. I mean, after the execution of Maximilian, you know, with the audience completely blocked out of the scene of the, of the assassination or the murder, I mean, we know that the audience is dead. They, they, they hated his work. The audience ran there, from weren't that. Weren't there, three, was yeah, there, there three, three, versions three versions of this? Versions Do of you it, feel yeah. all of them? Had that the power no, 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 that's the beauty of it this is a, um, there's so much to talk about, <laughs> but uh, you know it, uh, what we were talking about, and this will bring it back to that is that the technical narrative becomes the preeminent narrative of the picture. Let me say it this way. most people might go to a museum and look at a turbach and say uh Wow, it's a little, there are people in this room, and they're getting, she's receiving a letter, and what's going on, it's such a mystery, it's very interesting. And then they go across the room, and they go, oh, this guy's doing it too, and he's, you know, it's Vermeer, and she's getting a letter, and what's that letter saying? But as artists, or anybody who's sensitive to painting, right, not just as a sign, as a sort of truncated message based on the dramatic narrative. But anyone who's really interested in the intellectual component of painting, the, the, uh, the mind of the artist, will look at the Trebek and see, yeah, yeah, he's making this in such a way that I am kind of curious about what's going on with this letter. And you look at the Vermeer and you say, I don't really care a hoot about what this it letter says. It just draws said. you in. Something cause... else is going on here. The subject is not the letter. The subject is the lens. And the lens is a mediating factor between the artist and Venus or the artist and love. Or there are so many ways you could look at it that you can't look at the Thobach that way. Mm-hmm. You know? The technical narrative of the art, the artist doesn't do this ad hoc. He doesn't do it just simply because that's the way he does it. He or she actually constructs this thing to do that thing. So if you put an
0: agenda
1: behind it is what you're always saying. Always. The
2: artists are doing things with their eyes wide open. Even Willem de Kooning, especially Willem de Kooning, I mean, Mark Rothko, these guys are all working with their eyes wide open. They're staging the effect in order to see the effect before them. And then if other people see it too, that's cool. But they're just making this thing in front of them and so that they can stand in awe of it and just see. This is communicating to me. To, is speaking to me in this particular way or I have actually enacted some kind of visual screen that enables me to think about a variety of different things even things that have nothing to do with painting well how about the people who are influenced or copying
0: a de Kooning or copying a, a, a Rothko do you think they're you mean students or,
2: are you being or a, just people
0: or, or artists or people who are just jumping on the bandwagon because it seem to see. I I see a lot of that in modern art, where it's just like people who are want to be invited to the party. I see a lot of that in any art. In really. any art, but the idea is like what you're yeah. talking about is how do we know? How do we how do we find the you know the people who might be being honest and the people who are full of it?
2: You know. Uh, you know, we've become so desensitized to painting since uh, the, since um, the rise of. Uh, uh, the rise of, you know, an emphasis on text, you know, through linguistics and sort of the structuralist approaches to art uh, and semiology and things like that. It, it had the effect of actually um, ignoring the very thing about painting that is the most, that where all of the thought of the painter, where all of the message, if there's a message, all of the sort of intention of the painter sort of lies inside of these techniques. And because we've arrived at a place in, in this time, uh, I mean, not everybody on earth ever always knew this. Only certain people who are sensitive to painting who understood it. Like, you, you give a person Shakespeare, a guy on the street, you know, a copy of Shakespeare, and you say, read this, and he reads, and he goes, you know, over thy wounds do I now prophesy which like dumb mouths do ope their ruby lips to beg the voice and utterance of my tongue. He's going to say, what the fuck is that all about? <laughs> You know, or you—you you, but at the time when it was, re- no, was written, no, it wasn't. They didn't. It, it was still way above. It was—it was the highest achievement in literature that so a person layered, could make. Yeah. It was so layered, so rich. Yeah. And here's the interesting thing. Think about historically is that you know we're talking about the influence, the interesting, interesting relationship between you know the constellation of events that go on within any given period of time. You know, uh, so um, in Shakespeare. Uh, in Arnold Hauser's book about mannerism, he describes Shakespeare and Quixote not as Renaissance characters, especially like in Shakespeare. You expect that he's, it's the English Renaissance, it's the Elizabethan period. They're not Renaissance characters. They're Mannerist characters. But there's the Renaissance going on in England, you know, a literary Renaissance going on. So what is happening there? What happened is Italy passed through the Renaissance and passed through, and, and Neoplatonism, and it passed through Mannerism before things even got to England. By the time the whole agenda got to England, they inherited both Renaissance and mannerisms as They were like, and, been there, done that. <laughs> and, and so what happens to the English language with Shakespeare is that it multiplies drastically all of a sudden. Words are invented, filled, the language is fleshed out. The English didn't really have the kind of language that the Italians and the French and the Spanish had that was derived from Spanish, uh, from Latin, Latin and then from Greek yeah. and from Latin that was able to describe things of a, of a tremendously complex esoteric and Metaphysical, uh, you know, nature. Uh, England had to invent the language for that. So Shakespeare's, little well, Spencer and these different people, their greatness lies in the fact that they're actually carving the language to describe the most complex things. When Hamlet says to Ophelia, you know, get thee to a nunnery, go get thee, and she dies, he's actually said to to love, you know, go fuck yourself, you know, go kill yourself, I don't give a shit about you. That is like a no-no in Neoplatonism. A mannerist might do that, a Neoplatonist wouldn't do that. Or if... Um, Uh, now I got confused. When Horatio, when he sees Horatio and Horatio says to him um, uh, you know, speaking to him and he says to Horatio there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio than are dreamt of in your philosophy. What is Horatio's philosophy? It's the philosophy of Neoplatonism. So in Neoplatonism you don't see ghosts. You don't know how not to act. But Hamlet doesn't know how to act until he brings the play into the play. And it's through art that he's able to actually Make a decision about what's going on. So art, not truth, but the falseness of art actually uncovers the truth. The lie through lie. which the truth yeah. is revealed is because of Yeah, I was
0: right. always I, I always thought it was Yorick. Oh, Yorick! Yeah, last laugh for <laughs> Yorick. Poor Yorick. Yeah, oh, what a guy. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, one of the things you were describing, and, and and is when you were talking about the process and everything. It seems to be it's and it's a very modernist, ideas art about art, as opposed to art about life. And I'm sure you've heard that. And how do you feel about that? that some people are like, art shouldn't be about the, pro- the art of it. The art should be about life,
2: truth. Except that the, uh, the grammar for arriving at some kind of understanding of truth uh, is the actual art itself. In no, other words, it's inescapable. It's inescapable. I mean, we, we, we try to arrive at truth. We could, if you're Nicholas of Cusa, you could say, we arrive at truth, get as close as we can to it through mathematics. Or Plotinus would say the same thing. The rigors of mathematics bring you to this point of, Cusa called that learned ignorance, where all of a sudden the mathematics and the logic starts caving in on itself. And you reach a place of paradox. And at that place of paradox, you come as close as we possibly can on Earth to the divine, or to infinity, or to the truth, in Plato's terms, or our mm-hmm. tr- truth, mm-hmm. right? But the structures in order to get there are not magical structures. They disagreed with any magical Neoplatonist who said, you know, I'll, I'll do some spell and we'll get to the truth. They got through reason, through uh, logic and reason, they arrived at this truth, you know? Now, in painting... You know, if painting is just this thing about feeling, I felt this, I'm a caveman, I sort of been mowed on the (laughs) canvas, you know, I mean, I can't see Leonardo being a caveman Uh. or Michelangelo (laughs) or Picasso or Willem de Kooning. I don't see these people as cavemen. I see them as the most refined of intellects.
0: De Kooning in the same same breath as Michelangelo. For me. For you.
2: Well, no, Michelangelo, like Shakespeare and other people, occupy very important places. de Kooning to me is one of the absolute great painters of really? all time I just I, y-
0: explain it to yeah, me because I'm just I don't really
2: I just I don't feel it well I'll tell you I was at the de Kooning show and I was standing <laughs> in front of Excavation which is one of my favorite paintings and uh, there was a guy next to me I didn't know who he was we were just both standing in front of this painting and at exactly the same moment we both went <sighs>
0: <laughs> and we looked at each other and
2: started laughing he I knew exactly what he saw This is a masterpiece. Now, why is de Kooning a master? Well, is it a matter of taste? I think in the beginning, you know, people would say, well, Pollock is a great artist. De Kooning might be a great painter, but Pollock's the great artist. And that idea is sort of going a little bit by the wayside now, Mm -hmm. thank God, when people realize what de Kooning is. And I think the last two shows of his actually have cemented in people's minds uh, how actually great he was as a painter. A great draftsman, Uh, he said that there are two things. uh, I always have the cubist grid in my mind, so it wasn't as if he was painting, you know, with a kind of a wayward sort of casualness. You know, in his mind is always the cubist grid and his eliding of some of the, the the strictures of the cubist grid. You know. Uh, and if you look at his work over over time, you see a kind of inhale and exhale effect going on where he pulls things tight and then he exhales and releases it. And then he pulls it tight again and then he releases it, all in a kind of journey that's arriving at the ultimate synthesis of the the, the, the pure mark.
0: And that was on purpose, 100%. You're joking, right? I'm, I'm, what I'm trying to do is like, Draw it out of me? Draw it out of you. <laughs> won, won 200%, okay.
2: 500%. He gave his life to it. He devoted his entire life to it. He agonized over mm-hmm. it. Like Pollock, you know, anyone can spill paint on the canvas. If you see an exhibition of Pollock's paintings, they are stunningly lyrical and different and evocative of different, different you know, senses of timing where thing, a thing announces itself to you at one rate of speed or another rate of speed. You know, um, Do you think there are
0: people now who are, are doing something at that level then, in your opinion, <clears throat> living?
2: I don't think that the... For me, it's not an abstraction. I love abstraction. I love, I've love. i always loved it. It's my favorite sort of thing. But I don't think right now abstraction is of particular interest to me. And I think even like... One of my favorite painters is Cicely Brown. And Cicely Brown paints... Uh, she embeds some kind of figure in it, but her capacity to uh, reinvest in the, uh, the, the stunning beauty of the abstract expressionist Mark, to me, represents actually a, uh, a nod to a time before the cynicism of uh, the post-structuralist, mm. you know, the post-structural, post-modernist cynicism. Uh, A a sort of an acknowledgement of something phenomenally great having happened. Another person who did that, well aside from the early work of of, um, Rauschenberg, is uh, Jasper Johns throughout his life. You know, in his work, you know, you sense what's beautiful about Johns is there's tremendous sadness in it for me. You know, you sense a man who wants in some way to believe in the agenda of the late Romantic agenda of the Abstract Expressionists, but simply can no longer believe it, and so he makes a mark, a gestural mark, but he doesn't even an caustic. And before the brush even leaves the canvas, it begins to freeze like a butterfly caught inside of a, a, a case, you know. And he constructs his pictures of these pieces of this, and to me, it represents a tremendous uh, uh, longing for something, but also a desire to push beyond it. That's why, to me, Pollock, I mean, uh, Jasper Johns is a great, is a great Mm -hmm. artist. But to Kooning, I mean, I I, almost, if you like Delacroix, or you like Rubens, and the movement of Marx, and the the, uh, second guessing of one's decision, uh, wishing never to make it academic, wishing never to make it rote, wishing always to sort of evade the expected, Mm -hmm. In oneself, in himself, not for someone else, but for himself, you know, to make the mark. He had brushes fashioned that were long and then had little they hung down so that he could dip them in the ink and then make whip it like that, so that he could draw, you know, in ways that were counterintuitive. I tried I did this painting called cocaine once. I'm talking a lot. I love that painting. No, it's a painting
1: please. it's a i mean I, I actually went to see it uh it's i mean it's a huge canvas with looking down on a table with how much 300 art books something like yeah.
2: that yeah all the, open to different reproductions it's yeah. it took you about 10 years to visit 10, yeah, i started it 10 years before i finished it yeah. because i just simply didn't know how to commence with it but the once i had done a number of other paintings and, and a number of shows sure. I, I i said i think i i know how to approach this uh, which was it
0: haunting you in the studio? Always. They was just sitting there staring at you uh, when you're working on other work. Sort of, almost like, "Hey, buddy, that's <laughs> right.
2: <laughs> come this way. Right, we're come. not done. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we've got some business to take care of.
0: <laughs> Cracking its knuckles in the back of your studio.
2: <laughs> one day, one day, and that As day may painting, never come. <laughs> As you're <laughs> painting, he's free. like, "Oh, that was
0: that. That mark didn't work, did it? And you're like, "Shut up, cocaine. <laughs> yeah, right.
2: Is Stopped. that the yeah. <laughs> <laughs> stop
0: talking to me?
2: You're a little hallucinating. I
0: need
1: to paint more so I can make more money so I can buy more coke yeah. so I can... <laughs> so, right. you were,
2: so you were working on this. <laughs> well, Cocaine is you know it's it's a play on cocaine but right. it's actually the land of cocaine, of course. Yeah, yeah. Uh,
0: it's spelled uh, different. Not like the the Eric Clapton version of cocaine. Right, <laughs> it's <laughs>
2: cocaine. Yeah, right, <laughs> and uh, uh, but I, I was saying when I painted that picture, I you know. The, the, the hardest thing was not reproducing those paintings. Those paintings you could just dash them off in a way. I mean, they were interesting, and every one was an exciting experience to paint reproduction. But they weren't that hard to do. The hard thing was sort of staging the entire optical event of you know, just, you know, the degree of shadow, the change of temperatures, the sort of reflections, the placement of all of that. The yeah. Abstract, do you do, deciding
1: would have taken me forever. Like what what books to open to what. <laughs> <laughs> a, a, a lot
2: of it's random, but then there are some areas where. It actually, there are there are places where I, I put like Ang and Delacroix together. Or yeah. so, so, so. the whole center column. Is there is little
0: complete. homages all over that painting. Yeah, and there are little homages feuds
2: and, and and little feuds, but and uh,
0: little FUs to this person and uh, to that person.
2: Uh, <laughs> I, I love them all, <laughs> including one of the things that influenced the painting was Duchamp's chocolate grinder you know, the painting of The Chocolate Grinder. So Duchamp's Chocolate Grinder is a well, well-worn book in the lower right corner of that painting. Yeah, and hilarious. De Ducrude's Excavation was a big influence on that painting, and also uh, Max Beckman's The Night, paintings that I call scumble pictures, great scumble pictures. But I was, what I was saying was that when I painted the Picasso in there, a Picasso head, it was, um, it was the most difficult one to paint. Why? It was utterly counterintuitive. Every mark you think is going a certain way goes the other way. And you think of a head, you start seeing a head in your mind. You start trying to visualize a head, and he takes the mark exactly the wrong way. Meaning that's going, going you're- so
1: deep in technical narrative. Like it's you would you would have to copy it to pick that up.
2: And I had the same experience recently when I painted a big. Um, uh, it's not African. It's Polynesian, I think. Mask that's in the Met. Uh, uh in my last show i did this and it is a head in profile and again painting this thing was was frighteningly difficult because there are marks and lines going all sorts you of have, different ways you have
0: concepts in your head that are almost ingrained that you you that are almost involuntary and this is doing the opposite it's so you have to you have to stop the involuntary actions and go to pure observation would it be would it be pure observation or would you are you trying to get into the the head of the the person who made the mask well, it's
2: impossible not to attempt to get in the head of the person because you're saying you know what is that going why is that going there is it because it's not always simply uh, decorative it also seems to have a kind of like almost material purpose you know uh, and i think they
0: they did they, it wasn't just decorative. I think some no, of no, no. it was, there was a, there was a reason for those masks.
2: <laughs> yeah. Transformative, mm. you know, you put those on and they don't symbolize something. No, they
0: were like, you become, you become that. And the
2: community becomes something else outside of. transformative as opposed to, mm. you know, just simple. it's very interesting.
0: Now, do you, where do you see, where do you see art? Like we're talking where do you see art now going? Hmm. Where is it now and where's it going? Because that's something that I people ask me, and I'm like, I don't know. And hurry, because I want to get back to what you do after you put the polyurethane. <laughs> <laughs> we go uh, That's to... when, That's when we come full circle.
2: <laughs> Where do I see? It? I don't know. I mean, I can just do the you're, best you're, I can in I mean, my you're studio. I you're an educator too, so you 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 have an influence. Well, one thing I would say. One thing I would say is that. Um, uh, it may be the day of the, the luxury that we in the West have had uh, uh, regarding, uh, you know, our our, our, our capacity, our, our our you know our sort of uh, our right to be uh, cynical, our right to be snide, our right to sort of uh, you know laugh off in a kind of you know a jo- you know a jocular way. Uh, things that uh, foolish people who don't understand what's really going on might be experiencing. In other words, you know, it's like the syndrome of, you know, the the in the Weimar Republic with the rise of the Third Reich, these intellectuals smoking black cigarettes. Not the intellectuals. The intellectuals, a lot of them were, were being killed or being or chased leaving. out of yeah. the country, right? But, you know, these people... We were around. hiring them for scientists. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> and winning the war because <laughs> they were our Leonardo. Yeah, and the musicians and these great intellectuals. You know, from this this tremendous influx of these great intellectual Jews that were being threatened. They're, They're being threatened there. You know, what a fucking disaster, you know? Uh... The anyway, one with the black cigarettes. Cigarette. Well, you know there's a little patch over when You see them in those paintings from you know of, uh, from that period. There's a show at the uh,
1: oh, at the Guggenheim. Yeah. Yeah,
2: yeah. And you know, you know, I like the idea of uh, cabaret. Like we're laughing through this thing, and the whole place is going to hell in a handbasket. Well, we don't have that luxury anymore. And globally, things are really screwed up, and they're getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And with the rise of you know sort of, I mean, I don't mean to sound like a, you know, an echoing everything else, but like the rise of social media. Uh, And all of these kinds of ways in which the uh, human beings all over the world are being sort of uh, let in on the secrets of of governments, you know, uh, state secrets, Uh, it indicates to me that we're on a very sloppy threshold, you know, Mm -hmm. and that we are aiming for something, we're getting somewhere, but we still are, we're suspended upon this threshold, we're poised on it, and we haven't yet moved forward. So right now... You know, all all bets are off. Or well, whatever. it
0: seems like technology, whether it's social media, but technology and communication is moving at such a fast rate that nobody knows, whether it's the citizens, whether it's governments. Like, we don't exactly know what's going to happen because things are moving so fast and unprecedented. Like, we don't – because this is all brand new, whether it's like – some, you know, some government being overthrown or something by social media, but like, we're not exactly sure what's going to happen. So as artists, I mean, I, I'm not going to pretend like I know what's going on in the world, but I am an artist, and it's like, how do I do, do my job now? Or well, ha- where does art fit in? Where does art right. fit oh, into this?
2: Art has a very important uh, place in this. I mean, what, what we probably could guess at, even though we don't know exactly the nature of where things are going, is that one day... And it won't be too long after things start to become clear to people, a group, an oligarchy of people, are going to figure out how to manipulate the this new age and benefit from it financially.
0: Well, that's 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 happening now, and that's just human, human nature. Just <laughs> and even <Yeah>. when we <laughs> arrive
2: at sort of we finally arrive at kind of a new threshold of, of understanding in regard to all of this, we know that it's going to be an issue of power. There's always going to be an issue of power. We might be able to understand as much as we understand, but eventually we're going to be told what, again what to understand and how to understand it. We're going to be... Information is not going to be available to us uh, when it's not in the, in the uh, service so of the going people to come who are around. earning from money money from this. That's what's going on in the art world at all. Is there any works of art that are not uh, supporting this sort of ever-increasing you know, bank accounts of people who own uh paintings that you know are part of this inscrutable code of value we just can't tell why that is art now I'm not an idiot and I'm not a philistine and I, I, but uh, there is a lot of shit out there it is a yeah. 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 it's
0: amazing
2: and yet now so I don't know I might get in trouble for this but and it may be like I'll say this and people will say oh no this is this is really you know just dumb but imagine that you're um um on the collections committee or the exhibitions committee of a museum. Now, who are you then? You're a donor for the museum. You give a lot of money to the
1: museum. And you own some art yourself because that's right. what brings you in there. You're interested Let's in Say the art. you've
2: got an Elizabeth Payton collection. You've been collecting Elizabeth Payton. Because someone told you Elizabeth Payton was, you know, worthy of collecting. Probably a conceptualist who realizes that painting itself is a, is a joke. And so if you don't paint like a joke, not that Elizabeth Payton's a joke, but I don't mean to use her. No, but I but it use is the either. idea. Yeah. So if, you, if, if you paint like a uh, make painting into a joke, then it'll meet the conceptualist's demands for painting being something compl- like dead. Okay? So, but you've been collecting this stuff. And uh, you're on the exhibitions committee, and you sort of make a, a bring up a motion on the floor to, perhaps, let's, why don't we have an exhibition of, a, you know, so-and-so's paintings, knowing that you own a good amount of so and so, and other people do, too. And they say, I think that's a good idea. The curator goes, I don't know if that's such a good idea. And then you say, we think it's a good idea, and we're supporting you paying your salary. And so we you think don't. we
1: can get a new curator if you know. not right. So
2: there's an exhibition of this person's work, all of a sudden the holdings of these collectors go skyrocketing. Saatchi did it when he did the the show in Brooklyn, you know, the sensations show. He became well known for like, collecting a body of work, buying a museum, or making a donation to a museum, having the exhibition presented in the museum, and after the exhibition's over, and it's made this yeah. big hit, deacquisition right. of the entire thing.
1: I read a thing, though, he, he actually recently wrote. It's amazing. He wrote uh, some editorial. I think it was in The Guardian. And he was saying the art world is, it's lost its mind. I don't want any part of it anymore. Yeah. It's ridiculous what's happening. Was, I mean, that's exactly what he's talking about. <laughs> it I mean, may he, be. See, might it, be his
2: blueprint. <laughs> I think people talked about, you know, the painting is back. There's a resurgence of painting. They say and that every few but, years. Yeah, but you know, Satchi got rid of all of his, you know, uh, Tracy Ammon things and Damien Hirst things right. and all of a sudden made the proclamation as a, a collector and a an advertising man that painting is back and all of a sudden <laughs> everyone starts painting again. You know, yeah. it was almost. It, it, there's definitely the penju- pendulum swing. You know, right. but it's he amazing he stopped the pendulum and made it go when yeah. he wanted it to go, where he wanted it to. But go.
0: it's amazing how whether it's one person, one group could dictate the taste, or even what some someone who's creative or an artist is going to do with their life by saying a painting's dead, and then a lot of people might not paint. I think the true artist will continue to paint.
2: Yeah, I, I you mean, know. It's but the idea, ridiculous ridiculous that, idea that, that that they are,
0: are but they are then structuring the world that you're gonna st- hopefully start selling your paintings in and it might not be you know, a place you want to be, like, that would be very welcoming. Are you see. advocating revolution? Maybe. Absolutely. Rose and...
2: I'll be Danton and you yeah. be There's
0: like a helicopter to <laughs> <laughs> There's a light that shines in. Well, but it
1: I mean, it, it's also, it's a completely unregulated market. Completely, I mean, you talk about, like, dark pools and mm-hmm. all this stuff, but, like, you're allowed to do whatever. All the smoke and mirrors is completely legitimate in, in the art world, and I think A lot of insider
2: trading. Well,
1: yeah, I mean, so if your hedge fund just got shut down because you can't insider trade anymore, well, you can still do it with art.
2: (laughs) Well, that's exactly right. The biggest unregulated market besides the drug market. Yeah. you know and it's which there's got to
1: be I, I billions mean, I, of dollars I'm unaware of any it's specific billions examples, of dollars that's but, right yeah. that's
2: how much it's sort of contributing to the American economy that figures out are that it contributes so much to the American economy that we didn't even realize it before but you know imagine that uh, you've got the you know the people who are the one the money people who buy this stuff but they don't always buy it because they really know what they're buying well, it's I mean, a lot you, of you them buy
1: blue chip names you well, buy names or, that you've heard, well, what if or, they're
2: what if they're speculating about artists that are not yet blue chip names you know don't always know they used in the 80s they used to talk about this uh, they used to have an expression he's got a really good eye yeah right right and it was like <laughs> someone had a good eye <laughs> they didn't give a what shit about that? artists yeah. it's, the guy who has the good eye really is the one who knows <laughs> baseball most about player art. has good eye you know <laughs> good eye good you know, so eye we're, we're, it, it behooves a market like today's market to have artists acting like an infinite number of chimpanzees typing at, at right. you know, about yeah. keyboards coming up with, you well, so know, if it's all the same,
1: then they can determine and then it's all totally out of and our hand. Right. And where's
2: this code of value? It's inscrutable. Mother well, it's not
0: from people who are making art. Well, because
2: yeah. right. Well, some people are making. There are some people who really, you know, have bought into this sort of, yeah. you know. And see, there's no avant garde. Yeah. What happened is, what was the classic years of the avant garde died out, started dying out, according to. Uh, Clement I Greenberg, around the time of, you know, uh, 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 surrealism, it, the, the glory years of the avant-garde were already passed and people were sort of self-consciously avant-gardist, but now there's no avant-garde, but there's this ghost allegory that's perpetually floated above our heads, the ghost allegory of the avant-garde, and it's held in suspension by the people who benefit by its, by its perpetuation. Not the you artists. Know, no, they include the artists.
1: <laughs> Not they, even necessarily all the,
2: the collectors. Critics, yeah, it's the, the curators, critic, yeah. the curators, and the collectors, and the gallerists. Collectors, and the gallerists. This, they keep this thing in motion, and they all play their game. You know, the artist is these sort of rascals, peas in a fireplace, you know, he's like, you know, unpredictable. You have to bite you know, the hand if he you a little bit. Exactly. <laughs> and then you've got, like, you the, uh, wily. The, the, the collector, who's the sort of the patron of the arts, who has the insight to see for other people. He's the eye, right? And then you've got the critic who's very discerning. And he knows, you know, and again, it's like the, the he tells the, the collector, this is what's He through.
1: wrote the best book reports when he had never read the books. Exactly. That you couldn't penetrate it. all. He wrote a book <laughs> about
2: how to get along at cocktail so, <laughs> parties not having read right. the book. And you know and you've got the you great know, goes on. You've got the curators who sort of have this myth of, we are, our job is to educate the public about this new art. And so bring them in, and you educate them when the real thing is you keep the Philistine at bay. If the philistine doesn't exist, right? If you don't keep the Philistine uneducated and a philistine, there will be no ghost allegory of the avant-garde. Because you, there's got to be an inscrutable code of value. And if you don't understand the code of value, you are the Philistine. That's the power, then. And that's, that's the power. So what, are, what is our job, as artist, is to recognize where we are today, politically, socially, aesthetically, How we got here today, by reinvesting in history of art.
0: And learning your history, knowing your history. Knowing
2: your history, but also knowing the history of critical theory, as it evolved from the beginning of the the 20th century, the Caesarean linguistics through structuralism, post-structuralism, and how all of that plays into a a kind of deeper understanding of where we are and why we are uh, here today. And to know that is the beginning. Of knowing how to act, we can't act without the solid knowledge of these things.
0: Oh, that's that's great. a great place to. act. I, I mean, uh, where it's <laughs> boom, you started
2: and ended right there. How about that roofing, show? You want to get back to that? <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 no, no, yeah. <laughs> well, hey,
0: Vincent, we want to thank you so much for coming and talking to us about. My you know, pleasure. eventually, really like originally, in, I was you know gonna ask you about you Know more technique and all the stuff that people
2: want to know, but that's so we wonder why don't you
0: come back for part two and we'll discuss the uh, flashing. then we'll talk about technique, the <laughs>
2: yeah. Then we can talk about technique, yes. Yeah. I'd be happy to come back anytime.
0: All of a sudden, we're just putting the mics out, we're wrestling, and I'm like, wow, this thing really derailed, but it's awesome.
1: We've all got latex gloves on, <laughs> <laughs> and,
0: like, and you just hear moans and groans, and I'm like, you don't want to know what's going on, it's really awful. But again, uh, that'll we, be when we get our YouTube channel, yeah. Off. That's going to be the the visual element that will be the next level but um, again thanks for coming out and uh, really much. really Very fun pleasure. discussion fun yeah. and well, thanks for having I'm me I'm sure you'll be back because at yeah. one point I know I'm going to be like you know what I got to ask him about something <laughs> get back here we're going to now we're going to argue <laughs>
2: anytime Tom, anytime
0: <laughs> and thank you Jay Braun and thank you Jay again. Braun again for hanging out
1: and also thank you everybody who's been sending all the emails and uh, yeah, all the feedback has really really been amazing and Thanks, keep listening.
0: Yeah, and, and also a little mention that we've been, we're now, we're going to be recording from the Salmon Gundy Club, and they've been really cool with just letting us be here and say, do whatever you want. So we're in the
1: library surrounded by, a like, pretty – it's hard to resist grabbing the books. And then the palettes, I don't know if we're you surrounded noticed. surrounded by so like old palettes. They, they let the, I guess it's all the same palette, so I think they must have had a house palette, and they had like paint a thons, and all the artists would come in and paint, and then they would just have to sign their palette. But and they're like William Merritt Chase. There's palette, a Chase palette. Man. I couldn't find it. Innis. Uh,
2: are those urinals downstairs, the same ones that William and <laughs> Chase used? Because I felt no. really privileged I to was be using it it and I smelling <laughs> it. It's very possible. <laughs> you know, just one little thing. Do you know why they are rosewood palettes? Why? Uh, and we use sometimes white palettes, white palette paper. they are rosewood palettes because when you take a color... And then you thin it with your thumb like this.
0: It gets a, gray, a kind of you a see gray. The, you see
2: the optical gray. The optical and gray. And every color is different. With yeah. tinted, every color has a, it gives a slightly different optical yeah. gray. But on the darkness of the, because of the, paintings, be, you know, they, they would tone down the ground after it was white to begin with, tone it down, and then work light out of dark. See, but we don't do that today. Mm. See, that's why I have the rose one. Rose yeah. I like gray palette. I like, I like gray palette. <laughs> I just make mine gray so I can cool. see it.
0: <laughs> Again, yeah, thank you so much, Vincent. It was a pleasure having you here, and I'm sure you'll be back. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, I really appreciate it. And Cheers. Have a great time.
1: Thank
2: you. Alrighty, pleasure is all mine.
1: Great.
0: Peace.